0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Emily Dufton, the host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Lucas Rickard about his new book, Strange Trips, Science, Culture, and the Regulation of Drugs, which was released earlier this year by McGill-Queens University Press. Rickert is the George, George Erdong Chair in the History of Pharmacy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the Historical Director of the American Institute of the History of Pharmacy. He's also co-editor of the journal Social History of Alcohol and Drugs. Strange Trips is his second book. Luke, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So before we discuss your new book, I was wondering, wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. What got you interested in studying drugs?
1: Oh, wow. Okay. So I started my journey, I guess, as a writer and historian, mostly thinking about pharmaceuticals. Uh, And then I veered off and I wanted to uh, dive deeper, maybe into how some drugs, whether or not it's painkillers or other over-the-counter pills uh, might be um, considered legit, uh, or how others might be, uh, you know, breaking bad, if you can (laughs) put it that way. So I've been tinkering uh, on the ideas and strange trips for quite a long while. And, uh, a a bit about myself. Um, if you'll indulge me is, uh, of course, (laughs) you you know, in the the past few years, um, I've been bouncing around, um, from Canada to Glasgow and, uh, uh, and then now in Madison. So all that's just to say that the, the title of this book, strange trips, uh, I think it's a pretty accurate description of my life, too. Um, So as I was writing it, I was kind of going through a strange trip myself.
0: Well, they say write what you know, so I think this is very appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What I loved about Strange Trips is that it covers a lot of terrain, and I think some interesting terrain that I don't read about um, in a lot of other books. So before we get into the nitty-gritty, can you give listeners a 30,000-foot view of what your book is about?
1: Yeah, happy to provide the Cole's note version. That's the easy part. Uh, um, <laughs> so, strange trips. Um, it's really quite simple, I guess, um, at its core. When you strip everything away, uh, when you take away all the gloss, it's um, at its heart. It's about uh, why we control and regulate drugs in the U.S. and Canada. It's um, it's about our shared beliefs and maybe uh, right or wrong assumptions about drugs, and then how these impact health and society. So look, ideas about drugs are transmitted through culture, whether or not it's television and movies and, um, and then science and medicine help us make, uh, decisions. And on top of that, political ideology has a major part to play. So when, right. When, you know, what I try to do in the book is show some of the linkages between the science and the medicine, uh, and the culture and um I, you know to go even a bit further drugs um drugs move whether or not it's cannabis which you know tons about drugs move <laughs> um they take trips um they take trips themselves from being illegal and illegal from being legit to illegitimate um so You know, they move from being accepted and praised to being cast out and demonized. And so what I try to do in the book is show how uh, a variety of different drugs um, take trips and show that movement
0: absolutely so strange trips is such an appropriate title for it and i really appreciated how you did weave in discussions of popular culture films things like that along with political rhetoric and and scientific uh discussions about these substances as well i think kind of having that interdisciplinary approach to it is so useful and uh would encourage anyone listening who's writing a drug history to do the same because it really gives a better you know more <laughs> yeah. thorough, more thorough embrace of the history it's true we, we can't you know we can't talk about drugs without talking about Culture um, uh, I
1: promised myself that I was going to weave in Mr. T into any book that I, uh, that I wrote in the future, and uh, luckily I fulfilled <laughs> that promise to myself.
0: Oh congratulations. He was one of my childhood heroes, so I, I was <laughs> thrilled to see him appear <laughs> i 'd also like to know more about the choices you made behind your writing the the behind the scenes, if you will. So as you said before, you're interested primarily in pharmaceuticals, and Strange Trips follows that up by focusing primarily on licit drugs, or at least the licit uses of drugs, even if those drugs themselves are technically illicit. And you mostly look at medical uses of drugs for killing pain, or for losing weight, or for aid in psychotherapy, things like that. You don't necessarily look at recreational use or use for pleasure. Could you explain why you chose to focus on licit rather than illicit use?
1: sure yeah i mean i I think ultimately I chose to interrogate the back and forth and the push and the pull of you know how substances start out as licit and then move to a different realm or different sphere and then and then back again um, i that choice I reckon oh, started with um a book as most of most things do, um, in the world of history. Um, uh, and I don't know if you've come across Susan Califf's, um, kick-ass book called nature's path. Um, it's a history of naturopathic healing in, in America. Um, she's, um, she's based in California. She's a feminist. She's an activist. Um, uh, in the course of her book, which I really like. She walks the reader through alternative health movements. Uh, Today, we know all sorts of things about alternative health movements, whether or not it's uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and goop or (laughs) new agey stuff or yoga and acupuncture and whatever else. Um, But as I was writing my book, um, Califf kept popping into my brain over and over again. She I think did a, a masterful job in underlining the longevity of how, you know, doctors and quote unquote outsiders and regulators and patients have negotiated um, the, the proper, the right kind of treatments. And that's never been a straightforward um, linear process. Hmm. And so I, I deliberately chose to start my chapters Within the the legitimate medical realm, but then try and and highlight how how and why they they move uh, or take trips, as as I said earlier. So, what are the factors involved? You know, who are the key players, and um, and then try and link that that history to some of the contemporary discussions.
0: That's great. That's really great. I also really liked how Strange Trips was divided into three sections. Uh, in the first, you kind, of, <laughs> you kind of focus at the end, right? You go to end-of-life palliative medicine. Mm-hmm. In the second, you focus on what you call hippie medicine. Uh, mm-hmm. And in the third, you discuss what you call demonized pharmaceuticals. So I do want to talk more about the specific drugs you focus on in these sections. But before we do, why these three themes? How did you choose them?
1: Super good question. Uh, I, I guess just taking a step back um, for a second, lots of really awesome books and, and some crappy books about drugs um, examined just one drug. And so what I tried to do is present a broader perspective and um, um, explore various different substances um, and then put them in a conversation with each other, right? So that's that's what I'm trying to do in the book. Um, so there's gotta be a way of organizing the different, the different drugs. Um, so the themes I I reckon sort of bubbled to the surface, um, in an organic sort of way. And, um, it seemed maybe more unique, uh, to me at least, um, to organize them around certain themes than, than just telling a straightforward chronological story.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, And did the drugs themselves give you the themes Were there certain drugs that you picked because you wanted to focus on them and you realized you could group them specifically in these ways, or did you go in thinking about the groups and then choose the drugs?
1: No, I didn't think about the groups beforehand. Um, it just seems, uh, it seemed like, uh, patterns emerged. Mm. Um, as, as I interrogated uh, the different substances and drugs. And at the same time, I wanted to offer sort of a, a, a fresh spin or fresh take on an analysis of, of different substances. So I see the themes as sort of a groovy map, um, mm-hmm. if you can, you know, wrap your head around that. Um, so the end of life uh, section deals with opiates and lesser known substances, uh, literal the the demonized pharmaceuticals uh, section deals with diet pills and um, and then Canadian uh, pharmaceutical products that are shipped to the U S and and hippie medicines which is I should say that I'm not being negative or pejorative when I say hippie medicines um, that's about LSD and cannabis. So, Which are just so these-
0: closely associated with the '60s counterculture. I, I, I had no problem and did not find it uh, insulting at all. But I did appreciate, <laughs> right. the, I did appreciate the Canadian spelling of hippie, H-I-P-P-Y, as opposed to the American spelling, H-I-P-P-I-E. I thought that was very charming. I liked it. Oh. <laughs>
1: One of many differences between our great countries.
0: Yes. (laughs) Well, speaking of that, though, I'm fascinated by the geographic locations of this book. Now, this might be, and and perhaps listeners can hear in your accent, that you are Canadian yourself. Uh, Where are you from in Canada?
1: Uh, The city's called Saskatoon in the province of Saskatchewan. I dare you to say that
0: fast. (laughs) I will take your challenge sometime when I'm not being recorded. Uh, (laughs) But but so much of Strange Trips deals with U.S.-Canadian relations and the role of drugs in Canada and even medical tourism between the states and our neighbor to the north. And I love this perspective because not only do I I really do love Canada – but also because I oh, don't. Oh, it's a, you're 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 also wonderful. There's there's so few of you. There's only 32 million Canadians, but you're also great. Um, but also because I, I just feel like Canada doesn't get enough attention from drug historians. Um, can you discuss why you chose to focus on Canada and what role does Canada play in international drug policy?
1: So I wasn't trying to fill a gap when it came to Canada. To be fair. <laughs> so it wasn't a conscious choice. Uh, uh, I find the relationship between the two countries uh, uh, incredibly fascinating, especially now that I'm living in the US. Mm. Uh, I try to show in strange trips uh, how uh, national, uh, local, and international policies can diverge across time and space. And so even when policies are analogous, um, maybe they're enforced very differently. And um, so relationships between humans and drugs, uh, regulators and the public are overwhelmingly dependent on context. So Hmm. Saskatoon obviously is not the same as San Francisco, but uh, a lot can be learned about microanalyses of Saskatoon drug policy. Uh, just as a lot can be learned from a study of countercultural forces in San Francisco. So, more than that, when you place the two countries alongside each other, uh, and when you try and interrogate some of the similarities and differences, uh, I, I reckon it lends fresh perspectives.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think Canada is fascinating because in some ways it has this incredibly uh, progressive approach to, to drug policy, right? You have federally legalized cannabis in uh, the United States is still going by this piecemeal state-by-state approach. And yet you remain essentially a Commonwealth of the United Kingdom. Is, 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 am I getting that correct?
1: Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's
0: so how right. does this function and and how, like why do you think Canada has this very progressive uh, approach to certain substances? Of course, in you know, Vancouver, you have Insight, one of the only, um, legally recognized uh, supervised injection sites in North America, you have legalized cannabis, you're, you're doing a lot of things that are remarkably, um, one might say, avant-garde as far as drug policy is concerned. And yet you have this very interesting <laughs> you know, uh, governmental relationship with another country. Uh, you're the neighbor to the north of the United States, which does not have such progressive drug policies. Where does Canada sit in a, in, in a global drug policy scheme? And why do you think it's so unique?
1: i'm not sure that's i mean that's a that's a nuanced question i i guess the first thing i'd say is i think there are, we have loads of troubles with drug policy in canada still that um need to it's be sorted perfect. out
0: you're ruining now, my image of canada i know ah.
1: sorry i'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> the dreams are shattered um ah. I, that's the last thing i wanted to have happen um today um <laughs> Uh, So there are positives and negatives um, when it comes to how um, Canadian jurisdictions, whether or not it's in British Columbia uh, or elsewhere, are tackling uh, the opioid crisis. Um, At the federal level, yeah, the the Liberals decided to um, embark on this experiment of legalization of cannabis. Medical cannabis has been around um, since 2001. But, uh, but I mean, you have to remember that legalizing cannabis at the national level is still a violation of federal law. Sorry, excuse me, international law, mm-hmm. not federal law, international law. And um, that's also something that uh, the United States needs to grapple with in terms mm-hmm. of the breadth and the scope of the two countries. Um, I mean, I'm not a political scientist, and I'm a kind of on thin ice here when I say this, but... Um, <laughs> I think in the U.S., um, just the breadth of the, of the country and um, the, the size, uh, the, the different states, um, doesn't lend itself necessarily um, to you know, a, a unified a- approach to drug policy in, in the same way that, that Canada, which is vastly uh, smaller population-wise, would.
0: I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. I mean, the, the the population of Canada is smaller than the population of California, uh, which does make for more complicated uh, policy matters and decision making when it comes to determining, you know, entire federal scope of of the, the entire federal scope of certain substances. Um, but to move away from Canada, our beautiful, beloved Canada, and to get more into <laughs> nitty-gritty of the, yeah. the drugs you focus on in your book, which is why we're here. <laughs> um, I thought the first section on palliative medicine had two really intriguing protagonists that you had mentioned a couple of minutes ago, and those are heroin and litriol. So in your book, both of these drugs are concerned uh, primarily with cancer treatment and care. And I was wondering if you could walk us through their histories as cancer medicines. How does the history of heroin intersect with the history of cancer?
1: So these parts of the book are quite personal, actually. Uh, hmm. And writing them uh, was sort of a cathartic experience in a lot of ways. My mom died after a protracted struggle with cancer. In mm. doing so, she took uh, a number of strange trips herself, mentally, physically. So she was kind of at the heart of this section of the book. Um, this section of the book is... As you said, it's it's about the types of drugs um, that we might take and might want to take at the end of our existence. Um, hmm. What should we be allowed to take? Why or why not? Um, we're on our way out the door, so to speak. Um, hmm. So should we get to decide? So I use uh, medical heroin and Latril as a way to try and unpack uh, these fairly large questions about access and choice in in the medical marketplace. So medical heroin, uh, I try and explore it through case studies of Canada and the US. I uh, examine why Canada would legalize heroin as a palliative treatment uh, on a limited basis, mind you, and why the US wouldn't. Mm why would heroin be more effective, arguably, than morphine or Dilaudid? Uh, Who are the sort of key physicians uh, and major uh, players uh, who were in support of medical heroin, uh, and why or why not? A, uh, a big part of the, the story has to do with the rise of uh, palliative care, Uh I don't know if you've come across Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's On Death and Dying. It's a 1969 book, uh, so 50 years, uh, pretty important. It's a great book. She studies how humane medical treatments emerged in the late 1960s. She outlines the various stages of griefs. And so what I try to do is make these, um, sort of bring these two ideas together, the rise of uh, palliative care and what kind of drugs we should be using.
0: And it's so interesting the, these conversations about what sort of drugs we should use at the end of our lives. Because as you say, you know we're heading out the door. The fear for dependency or addiction seems small, since even if the person does live slightly longer. Uh, without pain, that would be a good thing, right? You would assume that would be a good thing. They're probably not going to overcome this cancer and go on to become a heroin addict. the The, the chance of that is probably pretty small. And yet, there is a lot of that same fear uh, of addiction and of drug dependency driving the anti heroin uh, feelings in the United States, preventing it from being used as a medicine in palliative care. Which I think is fascinating. um Could you talk a little bit about the the fear of heroin as a demon drug and why it prevented the embrace of heroin um in palliative care in the u s
1: It's kind of a quirky argument to make when when you think about it. the idea that uh, someone who has a finite amount of time left um, shouldn't get addicted to a substance i mean it just kind of stretches credulity in a lot of ways that, mm-hmm. uh, that people would use that. Um, but at the same time, you had a variety of other um, folks um, in the United States who are suggesting that uh, if you legalized heroin um, in palliative care, that it, it might leak out of uh, the hospital, that the cabinets uh, might be broken into and it might hit the streets. Uh, and you have to remember that uh, in the late 1970s, uh, 1980s, you, you have um, a lot of fears about uh, heroin misuse. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so the idea of uh, sort of heroin in sterile, palliative settings informing uh, drug addicts in, in uh, major urban centers is a very, is a very real thing.
0: Mm. Is heroin a useful drug in palliative care? Um, and did your mother try it at all?
1: Uh, no, she didn't. Uh, and whether or not it's, uh, useful, uh, it's, it's been used in a variety of medical contexts. So the the British medical association never stopped using it in Mm. an end of life treatment. And that was the basis on which, uh, uh, the Canadian Medical Association decided to, once again, allow uh, heroin back in, into, these, into these settings. So, um, throughout the chapters, what I try to do is get to grips with um, the different arguments that were made for its uh, effectiveness and utility, um, its solubility, uh, how, how quickly it, it breached uh, the, um, the blood-brain barrier, Mm-hmm. and whether or not it was ultimately riskier, um, than say morphine.
0: It's really interesting stuff. Uh, the other drug that you address in that first section on palliative care is latrile, And I did not know very much about this. I was wondering if you could tell listeners what it is and why it was and remains, uh, so controversial.
1: Yeah. Wow. Latreol was a fascinating chapter to write in the book. Um, so, okay, it can be found, latrille can be found all over the globe in, uh, so it's, it's naturally occurring. It's uh, in such foods as almonds or chickpeas, uh, cashews, barley, um, and...
0: in I'm guessing yeah. very small, minute amounts, or... Right,
1: right. I and mean, how so, many,
0: how many, how many cashews would I have to eat to cure my cancer?
1: <laughs> how much can you afford? <laughs> <It's very pricey. laughs> um, <That's true. laughs> yeah. there's. I mean, so there's certain levels of, uh, toxicity, um, uh, with Latrell and you distill it and, um, it's promoted as a cancer treatment. Um, hmm. and it goes back, um, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years, really, um, and so in the 1970s, uh, one of my favorite times to write about, um, it emerged as uh, a popular alternative medicine. And it, I suppose, crystallized debates, uh, if you will, about consumer choice and um, government intrusion in the medical marketplace and then the the availability of certain drugs, um, like we already spoke about with heroin, right? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Latril, uh I suppose, embodied uh, in a lot of ways the growing influence of um, patient activist groups. Mm-hmm. So you had a variety of cancer groups. One that comes to mind is the International Association of Cancer Victims. Uh, another one might be the uh, Cancer Control Society. These were organizations that were, that had some hardcore supporters, and they used tenets of the natural and alternative health movements that stretch back to the nineteen sixties, late nineteen fifties, and they played up failings of uh, medical institutions, and they they really underlined how crappy the the government was at at offering um, cures (laughs) uh, for for cancer, right? So this was a moment that saw the emergence of a really sort of robust network of uh, activists. And they they were um, critiquing what they saw as outmoded or... Um, orthodox treatments like uh, chemo or or um, or morphine, and um, these folks who pushed Latrille uh, often possessed pretty conspiratorial views. They often had neoconservative ideals. They would um, uh, castigate the the Food and Drug Administration the uh, National Cancer Institute um, f- for being really poor at their jobs,
0: hmm. which is so interesting, right? That that it would be these sort of neocons who are suggesting that uh, that the the American Cancer Institute and things like that are not doing a good enough job, so they go to essentially hippie medicine. Uh, right. I think you write repeatedly in your book that. Drug choices make odd bedfellows out of out of really strange, diverse groups, and I think Latrille is a really fascinating example of bringing bringing groups that you would not necessarily group together, uh, you know, in any other context, together, uh, battling for essentially personal choice uh, and and ownership of one's own cure and one's own health. Um, which I think is the theme throughout your book. And I want to talk a little bit about that in a minute, that sort of larger idea. But it also applies to a section you talk about in, um, or a a phenomenon, I should say, you talk about in the third section, demonized drugs, which is medical tourism. But not, Mm -hmm. I think, where most listeners would associate medical tourism, like going to Mexico, as you talk about when you discuss um, Dallas Buyers Club, or people who travel to Europe or Asia to have cheaper surgeries, but you're talking about medical tourism between the United States and Canada and what happens after 9-11. But again, it's people trying to take things into their own hands and, and choosing to pursue their own cures. How does that happen between the US and Canada? What does medical tourism look like in North America?
1: So because we have price controls when it comes to prescription medicines in, in Canada, uh, a lot of Americans uh, to help out their pocketbooks want to want to buy drugs from Canada, right? It's uh, and, and so that's taken a couple of forms. Uh, you can in the late 1990s, in the early 2000s, you could hop on a bus that was sponsored by the AARP, the uh, American Association for Retired People. Drive across the border uh, and you know pick up a pick up some uh, prescriptions, or uh, on the flip side, uh, instead of going to a brick and mortar uh, pharmacy in Manitoba or Saskatchewan or wherever else, uh, you could just order online. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could engage in these online pharmacies. So it's that kind of virtual tourism. So sometimes real tourism and virtual tourism that helps Americans um, deal with exorbitant uh,
0: drug prices. I can't even imagine being on one of those AARP-sponsored bus- buses heading up to, <laughs> heading up to Canada. That must, be, that must be quite the trip, you know? <laughs> I can't
1: imagine the and that's going on on those buses.
0: Oh, man. You know it's nonstop until maybe 7.30 p.m. when everyone goes to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, to follow up really quickly on our discussion, in Latril, what is the current legal status of this drug?
1: So, um, the Food and Drug Administration in uh, in the nineteen, I think it was nineteen eighty, uh, determined that the, it was uh, not safe or effective, and uh, and so what that did obviously is it drives it underground, um, uh, and so. There, there's still uh as far as i know uh sort of a black market um for this and americans could go elsewhere for the mm. trail if they wanted uh they could travel to mexico or or, or further afield
0: that's so fascinating to me um Especially as a historian, because as you know, in in my book, Grassroots, I talk a lot about the history of marijuana as a substance that moves back and forth between legality and illegality and back again.
1: Great book, by the way.
0: Thank you. Thank you. We we had a great conversation about it a couple of weeks ago for New Books Network. Uh, (laughs) And I used to think, you know, patting my own back, wow, what a unique argument in terms of pot. But your book shows me precisely how wrong I was, and that lots of drugs swing on this pendulum uh, between legality and illegality, licit and illicit uses. I mean, if you're talking about heroin in terms of underground use is one thing. Heroin in terms of medical use at end-of-life palliative care is something completely different. Uh, Latrill in America is illegal, and in Mexico it's not. Um, can you discuss this tension, this pendulum that drugs swing on uh, within your your book and and why do you think these drugs move back and forth so often
1: Ooh, that's super hard uh the first thing i suppose i would say is that we should probably recognize how drugs have been integral to the formation of uh society and civilizations mm. as well as um helping define cultural uh identities and norms that, And various drugs have underpinned the growth of the world economy. Mm
0: -hmm. So, I
1: mean, humans have been using psychoactive substances, whether or not it's heroin or cannabis, for thousands of years. So we should probably make that statement and plant that flag right off the bat. Um, Evidence from across pre-modern worlds indicates that all sorts of substances, whether or not it's wine or uh, peyote or whatever else, tea leaves for a host of medicinal, uh, recreational and religious purposes have been used, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So, okay, so that's one thing. Uh, (laughs) So the second thing has to do with uh, modern science and how we regard science and medicine in today's society. I don't want to get too deep or anything, but um, the way I try to treat science in the book is as a um, uh, a fluctuating or fluid sort of intermediated uh, process, and mm-hmm. it's one that's hyper political. So, um, in looking at in the different drugs, I think um, my my book demonstrates um, that this process helps give shape in con you know in concert with culture give shape to the way the drugs move back and forth uh uh now about the whole science thing just because it's fluid and inter- intermediated um doesn't mean I have less faith in it or anything but I think as historians uh we need to be aware of sometimes it's fallibilities in giving shape to to drug mm-hmm. policies um as well as all its magnificent strengths. Um, <laughs> um, but look, those involved in the debates about drugs becoming legitimate and illegitimate are are not going away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so patient activists from the 1970s um, are around today. Uh, those patient consumers are still here. And Mm -hmm. they're still going to push boundaries and they're still going to resist the government. They're going to still attempt to uh, revolutionize medicine. And um, look, we're seeing that right now with CBD and with vaping technologies.
0: And the use of psychedelics and, and you know, mental health treatment. It's uh, absolutely. Yeah. The way that uh, drugs inspire people to, you know, take to the streets and to fight for what they want, I think is such a, such a fascinating thing, which is why I think, um, Grassroots and Strange Trips are almost uh, sibling books in a way, talking about how regular people uh, have really pushed to change laws, and if not laws, at least access to certain substances, because they believe that they need it uh, to improve the quality of their lives. And that's, um, you know, that I love an activist. I love an activist. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> so, So what was your favorite drug or phenomenon, drug-related phenomenon, to write about in Strange Trips?
1: I had a lot of fun researching and writing about the diet pills. Um, mm. I uh, I enjoyed um, the preliminary research on ketamine at the very end of the book. Uh, the, the final chapter is called a ketamine coda.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Can you describe what ketamine is for our listeners?
1: Oh, ketamine is uh, uh, a, hallucin- a hallucinogen. Uh, uh, anesthetic. And, um, it's used for, in all sorts of party settings. And, um, it's also being used now, um, uh, as an adjunct to psychotherapy. Um, so if someone is suffering from treatment resistant depression, um, and, um, and, and, and standard, um, products, SSRIs are, are not doing it. Um, then now you can go for for ketamine treatments. Um, But it's also important to recognize that it's, you know, an underground club drug that's been known as Special K for quite a long time.
0: Right, right. Another perfect example of a drug that swings on that pendulum between licit and illicit uses and has certain places where it is approved of and and used in clinical settings and other places where it's, uh, you know, very clearly a recreational substance. Uh, Completely fascinating. And What drug do you think went on the strangest trip historically in your book?
1: If you dig deep enough, all the drugs in the book went on uh, bizarro journeys. Um, <laughs> and why I, think, why I think they matter in understanding those, those um, the journeys is that we're seeing that right now with, as you said, Emily, the psychedelics. Um, magic mushroom uh, legislation in California, opioids, mm-hmm. vaping. But I guess if I had to pick one, if you're making me pick one, it would have to be uh, the. And
0: uh, I am yes. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> pick one. The, the The history of heroin in Canada is one that just. When I was looking at the documents um, in the archives, and I was writing, it just, I. I had a hard time going to sleep because I just wanted to keep writing about it and I think it's an incredibly layered story also that adds to um, the the opioid crisis that we're going on going through right now,
0: yeah, absolutely and there's it's hard to say. It's hard to read anything that's not super fascinating about heroin. I 100% agree with you. And I really liked uh, looking at it within palliative care uh, in that chapter in your book. I thought that was a really useful um addition to larger understandings of the rise of the opioid crisis and how uh, because people were concerned with an under-treatment of pain, that was why we had Purdue Pharma, you know, promoting OxyContin and things like that. You know, we have not been treating uh, cancer pain well enough. Well, here's a whole other drug because essentially we didn't use clinical heroin. So these pharmaceutical companies came in in the 1980s and 90s and said, well, if you're not going to use that here are these lovely pills, and look what it's gotten us into today. Uh, <laughs> so I think your chapter is just such a useful uh, sort of prelude to our, our current crisis. It's a more people should read it. Highly recommend it.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
0: Um, In your conclusion, you write that, and this is a quote, the rise of the empowered patient consumer who purportedly knows what is best for him or herself and regards the physician in an instrumental manner forms a vital part of strange trips. I love that. I'm fascinated by this theme about the question of personal choice. And as you note, drugs and the people who support Access or lack of access to them can make these really strange bedfellows, as we talked about before. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a bit about the idea of personal choice and the empowered patient consumer in your book and the role that this person has played in determining drug policy?
1: Yeah, I think you really got to sort of the crux of of the book. Uh, Personal choice matters, but facts matter. Getting proper treatment matters. So you you have this ongoing tension uh, where public health officials and physicians are frequently concerned that evidence uh, underpins the management of a given substance and that that can be therapeutically or, or recreationally. Patients want to take ownership of their health. You get that. Um, patients crave facts. They they crave knowledge, and sometimes they'll go online, which isn't necessarily the best place to go uh, <laughs> nowadays. Mm. Um, you know, to take ownership of their health. Uh, and so, I guess in in striving for medical facts, you see patients often set against or battling um, against uh, doctors or lobbyists or public health officials and regulators. And the facts are really at the the center. Um, So the science often is far from settled. We talked a little bit about the science earlier, but the fact that the science um, isn't 100% conclusive has not prevented Individuals from demanding access to and you know consuming unconventional or untested, unproven substances,
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and
1: that's that's really at the core of of the book is that how that tension sometimes plays out. So uh, let me just give you a very quick example, if I can. So sure, uh, Latrille. So. Latrill I already talked about um, there were some really conspiratorial neoconservative folks who pushed Latrill um, they were suggesting uh, that it was uh, un-american and despotic that uh, the Food and Drug Administration and the government prevented access to latrill hmm. they said it was a restraint on individual freedom
0: mm-hmm
1: um, that, uh, you know, this was kind of what a communist country would do in the 1970s. I I find that incredibly off the charts interesting, that these are the sorts of messages um, that patient activists would be using to get access to something.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: It's very Cold War. It's it's very anti-government. And... It also relates to some of the debates we're seeing right now about the divide in the United States. So look, sometimes patient empowerment is a good thing. Sometimes it isn't.
0: And that leads me to my next question, right? So I'm wondering if you can shift very quickly from historian to oracle, if you don't mind. Uh, It seems that the patient consumer is probably going to stick around for a while. Yep. So what effects do you see them having on the pharmaceutical marketplace? What do you think their impact is going to be on the future of prescription drugs?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, so apart from the, the patient consumer, I, I see um, a synergy, if you will, between um, patient consumer activism and companies uh, recognizing that there may be certain problems in the medical marketplace. And so you have solutions that, that pop up. One solution, um, if you can call it, that is a company called GoodRx. I don't know if you've seen the the commercials for them.
0: I've heard a bit about it. Yeah.
1: So GoodRx is a startup company. Uh, there's a free website and a mobile app that tracks, uh, prescription drug prices and then offers you drug coupons all across the u.s so this you know you've um good the things rx we have check- to do
0: because we don't have price controls like canada right we right. need apps and coupons it's yeah. sad <laughs>
1: so, yeah and and so good rx um looks at um i, I i'm not sure the number between uh, 50 and 80,000 pharmacies across the U S and helps get you the best price. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, I mean, that's, that's one example of a response. Um, Another example would be how uh, major uh, juggernauts in the American um, economic or industrial landscape are getting involved um, in prescription drugs. So Amazon Amazon has um, developed a mail order pharmacy. Wow. And um, it, it's it's relatively new uh, and it's already facing some pushback from uh, traditional pharmacies, whether or not it's CVS or whatever. You can read more in the Wall Street Journal. But mm. in the years ahead, I think we're going to see um, new entrants into the. Um, The pharmacy and uh, prescription drug space, um, which is related to um, patient-consumer awareness of prices. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to be interesting for pocketbooks and for historians like you and me down the road.
0: But no more AARP bus trips up to Canada. I mean... (laughs) Good RX is going to is going to render that obsolete. That's too bad. That's too bad. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm, not su- I'm not sure if those are going to go away or not.
0: Oh, good. Okay, so there's yeah. still hope for when I retire. I can I can hop on a bus and and head on up to. <laughs> I'm sure I can, like, uh, you know, heliport or you know, a hologram of me can go to Canada by that time. Um, That's
1: futuristic, holy,
0: right? That's what. Well, I'm I'm also shifting from historian to oracle. That's how I'm going to buy my drugs when I retire. Nice. Oh <laughs> uh, well, Luke, this has been great, but I know we've taken up a lot of your time, and you have another book coming out in a couple of days. Do you want to mention the title of that very briefly?
1: Okay, sure. Yeah, that's called Break On Through, uh, Radical Psychiatry and the American Counterculture. And uh, it's coming out uh, actually on the 8th, amazingly. I can't believe time is flying. And so wow. that's just about uh, mental health and, uh, and, um, and psychiatry in the 1960s and 1970s.
0: Two books published in one year. You're making the rest of us look bad. Uh, but I promise before- I'm not on drugs. But you could write about that in your next project. So actually, before we let you go, I would love to know what your next project will be. How many books are you going to publish in 2020? What are you working on next?
1: Well, I've been toiling away on a few things, a few few projects. Um, I guess the one I'm most excited about right now at this very second um, is something called Cannabis Global Histories. Uh, It's an edited collection brings together some of the best new historical work on cannabis uh, all across the planet. So there are chapters about Iran and Mexico and Israel and South America and the United States. And it's going to be awesome, I think, yeah. to, to expose readers to um, evidence-based stories about cannabis beyond the shores of, of North America, beyond Canada and the United States.
0: I think there's even going to be a chapter in that about the parent movement uh, going abroad. I don't know who wrote it, though. That's too mm-hmm. bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was the, the book is based off of this fabulous uh, conference that you organized at uh, the, the University of Strathclyde, Strathclyde in Glasgow uh, last year, where we all got together and discussed international cannabis history. And it was absolutely spectacular. It was such a good time.
1: It's going to be a trip to see that in print.
0: Yes. Uh, anything else beyond that? any other projects?
1: Oh my goodness. Um, what else? Uh, no, I got nothing else. That's it.
0: (laughs) Take a break. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm dialing it down.
0: Well, it all sounds awesome. And, um, I want to thank you for writing strange trips. It's a fabulous book. I really can't recommend it highly enough. And I'd love to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: It was a pleasure.